Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is Keen on Democracy. A chill is enveloping the world. Everywhere I go these days, the conversation is the same. Everyone is fearful about the fate of democracy in our digital age. The same worried question is on all of our lips. What or who is killing democracy? Everybody wants to know. There's certainly no lack of suspects. Trump, Putin's trolls, Mark Zuckerberg, authoritarian populism, the wall, Victor Urban, fake news, Brexit, Bolsonaro, surveillance capitalism, Erdogan, Twitter, or last but certainly not least, the president of the People's Republic of China, Xi Jinping. So what's up with democracy these days? Is it really dying? Or is it simply shedding its industrial analog skin and updating itself for our networked digital age? That's the subject of this podcast series. This is a show featuring conversations about the most important issue of our age with some of the world's most incisive thinkers. I hope it both provokes and enlightens. Richard Wolf, uh, Rick Wolf, Richard, Professor. Professor Richard Wolf. Okay. Your friends call you Rick, so I think for this interview we'll do Rick. Good. Rick, easy question to begin, very simply, in a couple of minutes. What is capitalism? Capitalism is a particular way of organizing the production of goods and services. It differs from the other ways human beings have found to do that, such as slavery or feudalism or ancient village structures. It's a particular way. It's part of a series that the human race has evolved through. Like all of the others, it had a birth, it evolves over time, and then it dies. But is it premised on the free market? Is that, in economic terms, its defining quality? No. And the reason it can't be is that you had markets in feudalism, you had markets in slavery, so to celebrate the market doesn't tell you what organization of production and distribution of services this system has. Uh, You know, slavery doesn't exist unless there's a market in slaves all over America and the South where we had slavery, you can visit in every city, the slave market. So markets can't define it because they don't serve, a definition is what separates something from other things. That's what to define means. So you can't define capitalism with the market, even though defending capitalism has been so difficult for the system that defending markets proved to be the better way to go for them in the hope that no one would say what I just said, which is, That's not the definition. So what is the definition? The definition is the organization of production. I mean, how do you decide in every community that's ever existed, how do you decide who's going to produce stuff, who's going to get that stuff, what are they going to do with that? That's that's what an economy is. So what are the defining characteristics of this organization of production that that captures what capitalism is? Good. First, it divides people into two groups. One group are called employers, and the others are employees. And a very particular set of relationships links these two so they can get the production of goods and services done. That is dramatically different from a master and a slave, or a lord and a serf, or a community of equals. And so that's what defines it. And the peculiar relationship, for example, the contract written and signed by the two parties employer and employee, no parallel exists in feudalism, no parallel exists in slavery, for example. That's the key 
that distinguishes capitalism, the definition that will distinguish it from the alternative systems we have. What are the, hor the historical origins then of capitalism? Well, you can find traces of capitalism all through history, even in ancient history. Typically, when people were yanked out of other social relationships, for whatever reason, I'll give you an example in a minute, and they would congregate as sort of displaced persons, they would then enter into the relationship of employer-employee. One person had enough stuff to say to a person who had nothing, I will give you the wherewithal to live. In exchange, you work for me, and what you produce is mine. And that's the deal. It's better for you than starving to death. It's good for me because I accumulate by this mechanism. Uh, so you have it for a long time, but it is really only with the collapse of feudalism in Europe around 15th, 16th, 17th century that you had the conditions, not for an occasional example of it, but for a socially wide installation of it. Now, Rick, I know you're a critic of capitalism, but would even you acknowledge that it has an upside, especially compared either to slavery or feudalism, yeah. that at least in some senses it allowed workers to sell their own labor in contrast to being bought or sold or being born into some sort of perpetual social order? Yes. I would say that capitalism has its upside, as does every other system. Slavery well, was, there's no upside to slavery, is there? Sure there is. What? For who? For the slave owners? No. Not, certainly the, not for the slaves. For the masters, there's an upside. And for the slaves, given what their options were, also often for them. As an, as ma yes, Seriously? Absolutely. So you're relativizing slavery and capitalism? You're uh, saying that every system has its ups and downs and uh -huh. capitalism and slavery are kind of similar in that sense? No, they're similar and they have their ups and downs. Every system has its ups and downs. It's like saying everything else has its, I mean, I'm a Hegelian. Everything has its unity of its opposites. When you say you're a Hegelian, what does that mean? It means that everything is in a process of change, that everything that you see is positive has its negative offset, and that to understand something requires you to look at all those dimensions rather than get carried away by the one or the other, which is necessarily lopsided or partial in a way that at least the effort to understand the complexity. Hegel writes, everything is a unity of opposites. It's not some literary or some formulaic notion. It's a way of understanding that things are very complicated and you may better orient yourself to trying to grasp the complexity than to retreat into some simplicity which misses it. That's all. And so that slavery, if you look at some of the alternatives were for people at that time, what the conditions were before they were slaves and when they were a slave, was there an upside? Absolutely. But would you suggest that capitalism itself is mostly born out of feudalism? That The European story is that story. And that's the story Marx told. That's the story that most literature talks about because Europe has been the dominant part of the world for the last few hundred years of so literature is dominant. Before that, it wasn't. Uh, and, and capitalism doesn't have to come out of feudalism. It can come out of the collapse of slavery. It can come out of the collapse of village economy. It can come out of the collapse of self-employment systems of economics, where everybody's a little peasant or everybody's a little craftsperson. If, the, if those systems break down, and now we go through one of these transitions that history is full of, from a system that no longer functions to finding a new way, it's at that moment that the capitalist arrangement may emerge among the other options, and you may then begin to see. It may not last long, 
until the conditions are there for it to become the global system it is today. The last 300 years have been the time for capitalism finally to come into its own. It was old, but never survived in the old system. It existed in the interstices of the system in its weak moments. It becomes the dominant system. And just as that, it's now dominant in its interstices, in its internal contradictions, in its breakdown, you're beginning to see the shoots of the next one. Rick, would you describe yourself as being part of a, a, a Marxian tradition of analyzing capitalism? Yes. And what does that mean? It means I take that literature seriously, I, that I learned from Karl Marx, that I learned, well, let me put it this way, because I teach this stuff. I study Adam Smith carefully because I have a lot to learn from him because he analyzed this system of capitalism, literally starting off this profession. I learn a lot from David Ricardo. I learn a lot from John Stuart Mill. These are the great thinkers, if you like, John Maynard Keynes later and so on. Uh, but I don't stop there because here's the Hegelianism again. Those people had something in common. They thought this new capitalism emerging out of feudalism was wonderful, was a step forward in the human race. And so they celebrated what they analyzed, and that's fine. Marx comes at it differently because he's disappointed. He thinks capitalism has betrayed its promise. So he comes at it as a critic, and I felt always that a proper understanding of capitalism would require me to learn from those who loved it and learn from those who hated it, because that's how you get a more rich, developed, comprehensive understanding than to be only on the one side or the other. I don't, you know, I don't go around there, oh, I'm a Marxist. But if pushed, yes, I answer the way I did with you, because especially in the United States, this is almost uh, a novel thing for a professor to do. And I kind of want to underscore, you may have been unwilling or unable to study it. I wasn't. Before we get to what Marx got right about capitalism, which I, I, I know you feel like, um, that the Marx was, was perhaps the person who understood capitalism better than anyone else. What did he get wrong? What did he get wrong? <laughs> Several things. One, how strong it was. Two, how able it was to overcome crises, downturns, challenges to itself. I think he got carried away as a young man with the notion that this might be the shortest lived economic system the world had ever seen. Remember, feudalism basically starts with the fifth century and goes a thousand mm. years. Slavery has many centuries. Here he is in the 19th century. Capitalism barely got its act together and he deluded himself. He was wrong about how long it would last, how strong it was, how long it would take for it to become a global system with a whole new set of problems that didn't exist when it was just in England or just in Western Europe and so forth. So I think he, he misjudged that. I mean, there were other things he did not understand, but, but those two. Do you think he misjudged also the way in which capitalism could benefit the working class? After all, when he was writing in the middle of the 19th century, the economic disparity between what he called the proletariat and the bourgeoisie was enormous. Right. Uh, and it certainly, it may not have got fixed entirely, but certainly the working class in some ways benefited from capitalism or has benefited from capitalism. Or is that wrong? No, it, again, 
There are ways in which I could accept the notion that the working class has benefited. There are ways in which I would argue it has retreated, it has lost all kinds of things. Um, I think Marx was wrong in assessing, the, again, the capability of the system, especially when it was challenged, to reverse the normal tendency which it is and has towards inequality, to realize, uh-oh, we have gone too far, we better take some steps backward. You can even see it now. Uh, Mr. Gates or Warren Buffett or people like that are telling everybody, you ought to raise taxes on rich people. You ought to, because we are pushing the disparity of wealth and income in this country to a point where we're not just going to be talking about a populist movement the way it's talked about now, but we're going to talk about revolution. That came close in the 30s. And I think Roosevelt represents the recognition, you better step back. If you remember what happened in the 30s, we taxed corporations and the rich at a rate we had never done before or since. And we used the money to create social security, which we'd never had, unemployment uh, compensation, the first minimum wage, and public employment of millions of people. We had never done any of those things before, and that radically changed and reduced the inequality. Now, we've reproduced it now, but it was a moment of recognition, and that happened. I don't think Marx had that image in his mind. He couldn't, in a way, but he didn't. What did Marx get right about capitalism? Several things. First, this tendency towards inequality. Um, Mr. Piketty. And injustice. I mean... Right, but for him, inequality and injustice are pretty close. Or exploitation. Right. The notion of exploitation is one of the brilliant contributions he made. To understand, even on the most simple level, that any time you go to work for an employer and you sit and bargain with him or her, and you reach an agreement that I'll pay you $20 an hour, you must understand, Marx says, that the only reason that capitalist would ever pay you $20 an hour is if during every hour of your labor, you added more to what he has to sell than it costs him to have you do it because otherwise he's not going to hire you. So that the definition of employment is to produce more than you get. This insight, which is felt by virtually every worker in the world on one level, is the most powerful opening up of why there's endless struggle, why strikes keep happening, why the bitterness exists, why the divisions exist, and on and on and on. These are insights that are, I mean, there are many, but these are precious insights which you don't have if you study other traditions. Do you think Marx was right to argue that capitalism in the end would inevitably be destroyed or destroy itself through its own contradictions? Yeah, but I don't think that was a great, in I mean, it was good for him to say it, it helped people see it, but he was recapitulating or summarizing human history. Every other system had been born, evolved, and died. The notion that capitalism, finally, would be a system that is born and developed but doesn't die. The burden of that argument is on the people who believe that, not the people who criticize. All he's doing is saying, hey, because he knows he's, a, he's got a lot of humor. He knows what he's doing. He's saying to the people, if you see that it replaced all these other systems, where would you get the idea that yours your one will never be replaced. And if you do the history, you'll discover that the leaders of feudalism, the leaders of slavery, were all convinced their systems would last forever, and we now make fun of them. Rick, you've, you've been in, uh, politely, a minority now for 50 <laughs> yes. years as, yes. a, as a Marxist economist. You're right. 
Um, give me a very brief history of the last 50 years of economic theory. Why did Marxist thinking and economists like yourself, why were you in such a, a small minority? Good question. And it's important that you gave it the dates you did because it wasn't so bad before. If you look at the first half of the 20th century, the ability of Marxists uh, and people influenced by Marx, which is all I mean by Marxists, to get a university position wasn't so difficult. Many of them had it. Some of them were my teachers. And they even achieved a certain notoriety. At the beginning of the century, Thorsten Veblen. Later on, uh, John Dewey, who was heavily influenced. And a whole host of other. Paul Sweezy. I'm not going to list you a long list of names. Um, what destroyed the ability of Marxists to function in the United States, particularly in economics, was the Cold War. You know, in the 1930s, the very things I told you about, that was produced by an upsurge, a rageful working class, created one communist and two socialist parties, and the greatest unionization drive in the history of the United States, CIO. Millions of people who had never been in a union, whose parents had never been in a union, joined. And they were led by socialists and communists. And together, uh, they made a formidable power. And they went to Roosevelt and said, basically, you're going to have a revolution here, like you had in Russia back in 1917, unless you do something for people going through this horrible 1930s depression. And Roosevelt was a smart guy. He knew they controlled 20, 30 million votes, enough to swing any election in this country, including his. And he made a deal. He went back to the corporations and the rich. He comes out of that milieu. That was his family. And uh, he, he cut a deal. He said, you better give me the money to take care of these poor people, because if you don't, there's going to be a revolution. You won't have any money at so all. So Roosevelt sold out, or he was smart? And he was opinion. very smart. This country would have been would have looked a bit more like Germany, Japan, Italy, or other places had he not done. And that was his argument. Um, so he cut a deal, and we had a fantastic redistribution of wealth from the top to the middle and the bottom, under pressure from below. As if, and this was paid for by taxes on corporations and the rich, who were not happy about it, to say the least. That even might have been acceptable, but it ended in 1941 and 42 with an alliance between the United States and the Soviet Union, which for these people was the capstone. It was one step too far. In American post offices over the window, when you bought stamps, there was a poster of Uncle Sam arm in arm with Uncle Joe for Stalin. You know, this for them was too much. So after the war, immediately, 1945 is the key date. The war is over. Roosevelt dies. So he's gone. By the way, the one politician in American history, Roosevelt, who taxed corporations and the rich big time to give out help to the masses, he was reelected three times, the most popular president in the history of the United States. Nobody ever came close. The notion that a politician can't do that, that was ex post magic. The truth is, the one politician who did that was the most successful in American history. But since Roosevelt, everything, at least in Trade your food. mind, has gone downhill. That's right. What, well, but it, it wasn't some mystical process. The business community, the conservatives, everybody who hated what had happened got together and understood. They were very smart, too. They understood that Roosevelt wasn't the problem. He was dead by that time, but there wasn't a problem. It was that coalition that forced it politically, and that's what had to be destroyed. The coalition of communists, socialists, and labor mobilizers. But didn't a kind of a moderate Keynesianism reign 
between the mid 40s and the late 70s? Yes, absolutely. I would argue it still does. Despite the fact that you've had Reagan and despite Trump now, the dominant. But that's a kind of diluted Rooseveltian ideology, isn't it? Which? A moderate Keynesianism. Keynesianism. Yes, it's a version of that. It doesn't tax the rich. It doesn't do all those things. But it is a moderate version of that. Which enabled a, a capitalism that it, in your mind, was it, was it a palatable capitalism? Well, it's, but it's better than the alternative kinds, absolutely. And then what happened? But, but, no, but notice the combination. You had a mild Keynesianism to bring us out of the war, to rebuild the economy, to get it going. Our rates of growth were quite impressive in the 40s, in the 50s, and to the 60s. Uh, but it was accompanied by a political repression. I mean, one of my teachers, a man named Paul Sweezy, who had gotten his PhD and taught at Harvard, who was a member of the Rockefeller family, was hounded out of every job he had. One of my teachers ended up being an editor of the Monthly Review magazine here in New York. Um, he couldn't get a job because he was interested in Marxism. I don't think I would have gotten a job being interested and not hiding it that I was interested in Marxism had I not gone to all the elite universities in this country. So that every time I've had a difficulty, I wave my little pedigree, and in this country, that's enough. It's like garlic with the devil, backs off and lets me function. If I if I had gone to the University of Kentucky, you and I probably wouldn't be having this interview. Over the last 25 years, though, haven't we seen the rise of a new kind of economic theory, economic thinking, some people call it neoliberalism, um, that represents or has represented at least a new kind of orthodoxy? Yeah, I wouldn't call it new. I would call it the revival. I mean, the reason people call it neoliberalism is it's liberalism in a new version. So a, like. a revival of, a, a, some people might call it a free market capitalism. I know you, you might be a bit ambivalent about those terms. What a, yeah. a purer, more unadulterated, uncompromising kind of capitalism? Is that how you would describe it? No, I think that that's libertarian make-believe. What you have is the capture of the government. Uh, the government came in and solved the capitalist crash of the 1930s. And so we had regulation, we had interventions. They didn't want any of that. They didn't want the New Deal. They, they undid that in the last 50 years. They, it's not that they don't want government. The government is a bigger economic power today than it was 20 years ago, and it was bigger then than it was before. So with all the ideology of, against big government, everybody, including the Republicans, make it bigger. But they want it to function in a different way. So we, it, it's going to do this and this and this for the business community, and not that and that and that for the mass of people. So you've seen a change. The ideologues will tell you this is a new kind of capitalism. But that's the froth. The reality is you destroyed the left, you demonized cap uh, Marxists and socialists and communists, hence my difficulty of getting even a course taught in. I mean, I went to Harvard, Stanford, and Yale. I have a PhD from one, a master's from the other, and my honorable degree from the first. No one ever in my studies of economics required me to read one word of capital. I mean, that's childish. That, that's not, that, that's shameful. Capital, you mean Marxist capital. That's right. 
But the story, at least in your mind, may have a happy ending because Marx and Marxism and your kind of critique of capitalism seem to be back in fashion. What's happened, Rick, over the last five to 10 years? Is it really since 2008 and the Great Crash? I can't come up with a better answer. I think, I think you put your finger on it. I think you have the right answer. That, that's it. The, the crash in 2008 reverberated through the consciousness and the culture of this country. It, it in one act, undid the promises, implicit and explicit, that we were a middle-class society, that yes, there were a few really rich people at one end and a few desperados of poverty at the other, but mostly we were all one big upward and onward middle class, and that's gone. And it has been, it, it actually, the decline of all of that started long before, but that crash in 2008, that spectacle of the rich at the top getting bailed out after they brought this crisis while the rest of the people are left to fend for themselves, this, it was too much. And suddenly the idea became possible again that this isn't the problem of the Federal Reserve not managing interest rates correctly, or of this or that politician getting this. Or, there's something more basic going on. And the minute that question is asked, you begin to think systemically that Marxism is just, it's just a matter of time because it's the most developed systemic critique of capitalism that we have. But we've also seen the rise of alternative, nationalist, xenophobic critiques yes. of capitalism. Absolutely. And they want to go even further, bring, make the government even more powerful, have it intervene even more heavily. It's always, it's a sardonic kind of humor. It's always funny for me to watch the tension as the conservatives embrace, for political reasons, the far right, even though the far right is celebrating the very interventions of the government that the conservatives used to say they didn't want to see. You can see it with Mr. Trump. Putting tariffs on everything is an enormous tax levied on the economy. To do that as a conservative takes quite a bit of gymnastics, and to follow it and to endorse it requires either admitting that you were wrong before, which they can't, or, or giving an argument why there has to be a seismic change, which they don't do. I don't know if they could, but they don't. So yeah, I think for me what you're seeing is, and I think it's very common, and I would go again back to the history, when capitalism begins to crumble and begins to lose its mass support, having promised a big middle class growth, it can't deliver. You know, if I had more time, I would argue with you that capitalism has moved that the reason these problems exist in Europe and North America and so forth is because the center of capitalistic growth has left Western Europe, North America, and Japan. And it's moved to China, India, Brazil, and places like that. And that they're in the ascendancy and we are in the decline. And that is very hard for a population to cope with. And so what happens in capitalism is when you're in decline, it's what the French call sauve qui peut. Everybody's for yourself. The people at the top are in the best position to weather the downturn, the decline, because they have resources. The people at the bottom suffer the most, and they're bitter. And in that bitterness comes the opportunity for scapegoating. And so in, in England, it's the European Polish plumber who works in your house, or the Pakistani, or the Indian. And in this country, it's the Mexicans and the Latin American. You can see it all again. So yeah, in that, those people want a powerful government that will protect 
the mass of indigenous natives, let's call them, and will demonize and expel and deny everybody, and you'll be saved. Rick, as you know, certainly better than I do, throughout much of the last part of the 19th century, there was a great debate on the left between people who believed that capitalism couldn't be reformed, social democrats, and right. communists who believed that by definition it was going to be destroyed. Um, today we have, it seems, the same kind of debate, perhaps even within the Democratic Party between Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. Where do you stand on this? Where is the future of capitalism? Well, I think you're right. At least since the middle of the 19th century, there has been a debate between the, to make it simple, the reformists and the revolutionaries, those who think it can be reformed peacefully, hopefully, through the ballot box or something like that, and those who don't think this system will leave quietly. It will use its military, it will use its force, and that, <coughs> excuse me, you have to be prepared for that. The way I would explain it most is go back to the example we've been using in the conversation in the 1930s. There were people in the 1930s in that coalition of communist socialists and the CIO, the labor movement, who were revolutionaries who came out of the Marxian tradition, socialist traditions, and they wanted a revolution here. But when they had that fateful meeting with Roosevelt, you've got to help us or else you're not going to be the president very long. The president, when he met with the rich and got them to half of them to go along with him, which is all he needed, he went back to the communist socialist and union and said, okay, I have a deal. I will give you benefit. I will help the mass of people, which he did. But I'm not, I won't do it if you keep talking about it. That has to go. No more revolution. And basically, the communist socialism, they accepted that deal. There were a few who yelled, but they accepted that deal. So we had a reform. Social security, unemployment, that's all a reform. What was the result of the victory of reformism over revolution, even among socialists and communists, let alone the rest? The answer was a system that was able in the subsequent 40 years to undo almost everything they did. We just went through a terrible downturn. We didn't even have a national discussion about a public employment program. So Rick, you're dancing around this question. Are you suggesting then that really there is no future of capitalism without exploitation? That it's a yeah. system that can't be reformed? It's not so much that it can't, that that's its base is, is exploit. That's so we need to get, in very simple terms, we need to get rid of it and replace it with a more equitable, a more manageable and perhaps a more efficient economic system. Absolutely. Absolutely. The reason I was telling you about the reform was what we learned from that reform experience is that if you don't change the basic structure of production, the people who you leave in charge, as they were left in charge, and that is all reformism does, leaves the capitalist in the position of employer to get the profits, that capitalist in that system has the incentive and the means to undo whatever reforms you have. The irony is the choice between reform and revolution, we made it for reform. The lesson, without revolution, a reform never survives. So we're going back to 1848 for like 30 seconds, Rick. Your manifesto, your, I don't want to call you a communist, but your mm. manifesto for making the world a better place. Give me five very brief bullet points of a better economic system beyond post-capitalism. I won't need five. I'll give you one. I want Let, five. Okay. But the well, first, one. first and foremost, 
The lesson of this reform and revolution is you got to change the basic system. And by that, I mean, you cannot anymore have the undemocratic organization of the workplace. You cannot have a tiny group of people, the owner of the business, the board of directors in a corporation, whatever, the major shareholders, whatever group you want that's in charge. You cannot have a system in which they make the decisions, what to produce, how to produce, where to produce, what to do with the profits, unaccountable to the mass of people they employ. In other words, you've got to change that so that the democracy you give verbal celebration of exists inside the enterprise where it has been denied entrance by capitalists from the history of the, from the entire history of the system. So economic democracy to go with political democracy. Yeah, without which political democracy becomes a formality and a sham. So post-capitalism is all about a new kind of democracy, That's a right. workers' democracy. That's right. That is that begins in the workplace where most adults spend most of their lives from the time they're 20 to the time they die or nearby, that has to be a democratic bastion if the rest of society is going to even make a vague claim that it's democratic. Sounds a bit like Uber and Airbnb. <laughs> That's a democracy for everybody to be able to exploit other people. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a collective decision-making apparatus in every... That we got rid of kings because we didn't want to be subjects. Inside the enterprise, there are kings. That's where they've survived. And they have to go, hopefully quietly, and be replaced by what is increasingly happening in the world, which is called worker co-ops anyway. So the future is Corbynism. Yeah.